Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. opportunity to explore a little of what I started to say during children's time, which is objective truth, truth that is independently verifiable. This is usually something that can be observed by multiple people. This is something that is quantifiable. Usually this would involve some form of numbers and some way of which to tally and take stock of what we have. Perhaps it's something that we can record or photograph so that then we can have it. Or spiritual truth. A little more difficult to pin down spiritual truth. Spiritual truth is that which God points us to, directs us, even calls us toward, and yet it requires a lot more effort on our part to discern it, to uncover it, and to make it our own. And so in the world of Christianity, which is a large umbrella term for many different families or denominations within the entire scope of those that believe that Jesus is the Christ and their Lord and Savior, there is a great disparity about how people view truth. You would think that we could agree on something. Well, it's not how we understand truth. Specifically, how we read the Bible and truth in the Bible. Now, you might be aware that there are some that are very staunchly about literal biblical truth. Every word is true exactly as it is written. And for a lot of us, we've encountered this. Either it's been part of our past, it might be part of our present, it might be a way in which we have had dialogue or conversation or unproductive encounters with other people. And so we are aware that there are those who think that what I just read to you literally happened. Let me recap what I read for you. That was directly after the parting of the Red Seas. God had brought God's people out of 400 years of slavery and bondage in Egypt. And as they were leaving Egypt, Pharaoh changed his mind and decided that he would overtake them with his army of chariots and destroy them before they could flee. And so the people had made it all the way to the physical boundary and barrier of the sea. And there they thought that they would be destroyed but God parted the seas for them. I love the description in what I read for you, that the deeps congealed, <laughs> that it suddenly like became a physical barrier of its own, holding back the waves and the depths, and the people walked on dry land through the middle of the sea. And then the, the chariots of Pharaoh, having witnessed this, decided to pursue them even there. And as the people reached the other side in safety, God closed the seas back over the chariots of Pharaoh, destroying his army that had come to destroy God's people. And then according to what the Bible says in Exodus 15, Moses and the Israelites, meaning all of them, broke into spontaneous song that I read to you encapsulating 18 verses. That would be a miracle, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be a miracle if that many people could suddenly know and properly sing together all of that. I don't know if you know this, but the choir had not rehearsed that anthem. The choir didn't even have the words. In fact, those are menus for the brunch at Fargowners. They spontaneously stood up before you. None of this is true, is it? No. Okay, just checking. Might be. Squad goal for later. But 
They practiced, they rehearsed, because music is not as easy as they make it look, right? They had to learn the words. Someone actually had to write the words and then probably did some tuning and to make sure that they were correct and that it would work together. And then they had their parts and they had to sing it and they rehearsed it so that it would sound as glorious as it did. So already, perhaps your experience, even if this is the limited experience you have, is probably telling you, that's probably not accurate. And how many people are we talking about that broke into song anyway, right? How many people did that? Well, the book of Numbers might have some answers for us. So immediately in Numbers chapter 1, God tells Moses to take a census. Not the kind of census that we take here in the United States where we count all the people, but instead a census was for only males 20 years or older who were eligible to fight. And in that census... It's all added up, and you can read it for yourselves if you would like, and then it tallies it together in Numbers chapter 1, verses 45 and 46, that the number of 20-year-old males, who, 20 years or older, who were eligible to fight numbered 630,550. Exactly. And that because of that, we know that those are just a small subset of all the Israelites. That's over half a million Israelites right there. But it doesn't include any males or females who are under the age of 20. It doesn't include any of the women at all. They're not included as part of the fighting class. And it doesn't include any males who are older to the point, and there's no real cutoff there. It's not like clergy. We're mandatorily retired at 72. At 72, apparently, we just become completely useless to you. Uh, but anyway, they didn't have that in the Israelite army, so it could be a sliding scale there of who is suddenly you know, too injured or has too many health issues or just maybe don't want to do it anymore. But there could be a much larger number than what we have. In fact, some estimates run as high as 2 million people came out in the Exodus. That would be a lot of people. 2 million people who suddenly learned 18 verses of a song and sang them perfectly together. Do you believe that? If you do, it's okay all right it's not a problem but just to confuse you even more a second census was taken 25 chapters later in numbers 26 51 that again tallies up all of the 20 year old males 20 years or older who are eligible to fight and now the number is 601,730 we're off by about 29,000 what happened to those 29,000 in 25 chapters we've lost a lot of people or it's possible that maybe somebody miscounted the first time. You know, you have people that count and overinflate, and then you have people that count and undercut, and then you have people that are perfectionists and trying to nail every single one of them. I mean, and it's hard to make sure that you're not double counting either, because even though they divided them among tribes and they were trying to count each tribe, you know that there were some of those 20-year-olds that like, couldn't sit still and were walking around and they might have gotten caught twice, who knows? But the idea is that the number is more of a generalization. It's not a literal number. In fact, there are some who critique the census figures and will argue through a number of critiques and means that the actual number is probably closer to 30,000 because we know that at the time in Egypt's history when these people were meant to have exited the country, that Egypt only had somewhere between 2.5 and 5 million people. So it's a little hard to think that like the entire nation of Israel is equal to the entire nation of Egypt or half of the total population of Egypt. 
So the numbers aren't starting to come together as much as you would like. Unfortunately for me and any number of you who are okay with this not being the literal truth, there is spiritual truth. And that is what the United Methodist Church believes. We believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Now for people who like surety, who like concise, correct answers, who want to know that the ground they are standing upon is truly made out of bedrock, that is not comforting at all. The idea that I might not read the Bible the same way you read the Bible is very disconcerting to certain people. But for those of us who read this, and maybe you're like me, and you go, so what? I don't care about how many numbers there are. That doesn't interest me. I'm not really concerned with how many fighting men they had. To me, the story itself is what is important. I'm more interested in the interaction of a liberating God with God's people than I am the actual number of people that witnessed or experienced or sung about that experience. I'm more interested in the deeper meaning, the spiritual truth. And for those of us that tend to be on that side of the theological scale, the numbers aren't really important. The fact that they contradict themselves within 25 chapters of the same book isn't really an issue. It's okay. It makes reading the Bible a lot easier. Every time I've ever come up against a fundamentalist and they want to talk about every word of the Bible is literally true, I always think to myself, how do you get through Genesis? Because there's two completely different creation stories. By Genesis chapter 2, you're like, they're not the same. I don't know how you keep going. I don't know how that works. And then let's just take what I just read for you. I'm not going to make you go back into Genesis. Let's go back into Exodus and what we just read. So not only did over half a million people spontaneously burst out into a song that they didn't know, but apparently it was a prophetic song because it says at verse 13 that the steadfast love led the people whom you redeemed and guided them by your strength to your holy abode, as in past tense. The people heard, they trembled. Suddenly, without having done it, terror and pangs seized the inhabitants of Philistia. They haven't even been to Philistia yet. And the chiefs of Edom and the leaders of Moab all were dismayed and trembling. They haven't even gone there yet. How do they know that's going to happen? And that the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. They don't know that that's going to happen. And in fact, if you read Judges, it probably didn't. But terror and dread fell upon them, according to what they sang. And then it says, you brought them in and planted them on the mountain of your own possession. They just crossed the sea. They're not anywhere that they're planted yet. They have a long way, 40 years before they're planted. So either you have to start trying to make up ways in which this could be true. Well, yes, this is God, and God can spontaneously make almost half a million or more people spontaneously sing a prophetic verse, which, by the way, God never does again, ever. I don't even think there's an account of Jesus getting all of his 12 disciples to sing a hymn together in tune. And yet this happens. But just to make it a little even more difficult, if you were to go on to verse 19, it says, when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his chariot drivers went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Are you having deja vu? We just did this. And then the prophet Miriam. Whoa, hold on a second. Do you realize that this is the first time that the word prophet is used in Exodus and it doesn't describe Moses? It describes Aaron's sister, who is actually Moses' sister too. 
But all of a sudden, things aren't starting to match up very nicely, are they? There's some rough edges to this truth. She took a tambourine in her hand, which if you could read the Hebrew, is not actually a tambourine. It doesn't have any bells. It's really an open-faced drum. And all the women went out with her with tambourines and with dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The end. That's a different recounting of the same story. And it's right after the first recounting. And you might say, well, why bother? Well, this is an oral history people. And if you've ever been around someone telling a story, have you ever known somebody like this where they just keep drawing out the story and you're like, come on, get on with the story. I don't need to know what you wore that morning. I just need to know the point of the story. And you're listening and you're listening and you're ready for the story to end. And then finally the story does end. And then they kind of like come back and you're like, no, the story is over. Stop. I don't need 18 verses of a story. We're good. And then you, you get somewhere and somebody's like, so tell me what happened yesterday. And you're like, don't you dare tell that story. We're going to let my dad tell it because my dad's an introvert and he'll tell you in two sentences. Verses 29 and 20. Uh, 19 and 20. That's what you would get you would get a much more abbreviated one where suddenly Miriam went out and Miriam sang a slightly longer than just a praise, right? Just a couple of sentences there. Miriam sang it to them. That's a lot easier to swallow, isn't it? And it's a lot quicker. So if you're less interested in the entire song and you're more interested in the story, then you're going to tell Miriam's part. You're like, and then Miriam came out with a tambourine and she danced and it was great and she sang us this little song and we've written it down. Moving on. Or if you're the kind of person that really, really loves music and you really love the theological underpinnings of a good sacred song, then you're going to want to read what I read to you originally. And there can be two stories. And the Bible actually says this, that there can be more than one account. There can be more than one way of experiencing things because we have four gospel accounts. And if you really want things to happen fast, let's say you don't have a lot of time on your hands, you're going to want to read the gospel account of Mark because everything in Mark happens literally immediately. Immediately, Jesus was here. Immediately, Jesus was over here. It's like Jesus just like zaps from one place to the other, and he's very quick and effective. And Mark is the shortest gospel. So you are going to get right through that whole story very quickly if that's what you want. Now, if you would like to really journey through the life of Jesus, then you're probably going to want to go with Matthew or Luke, because they're going to really flesh out the story of Mark much larger and longer. And for some of you, you're going to want to know all the nitty-gritty details about how Jesus came to be. And so you're going to want to read Matthew and Luke. Or if you're one of those people, God love you, who really wants to hear everything Jesus ever said, then you're going to want to read the gospel account of John. Jesus is very verbose in John. In fact, almost all of John is the night on which Jesus was betrayed because he gives one of the longest speeches anyone has ever recorded. And if that is what resonates with you, then you have it. All of those can be true because we don't all see and hear the very same thing. The author of Mark saw what he needed and was succinct and concise. And the author of John heard all of the things that Jesus was saying and wanted to have them, not just for himself, but for everyone to have. And you can have access to four different understandings of who Jesus is, what his earthly ministry was like, and what he was really trying to tell us.
because of the willingness of the Bible to give you multiple opportunities to hear different people and their different takes on Jesus, you are able to hear all kinds of things. And for instance, they don't agree. I don't know if you know this, but the four gospel accounts don't agree. In our gathering liturgy, we read where Jesus says, I speak to them in parables so they won't understand. That's a very compassionate Christ, isn't it? I don't want them to understand. I don't need them to understand. In fact, I'll cite for you Isaiah so that you know why they're not going to understand. I don't want them to understand. Luke didn't like that. Luke was like, no, 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 no. I speak to them in perils so that they will understand. I speak to them in stories so that if they listen, they will, they will hear. It will get to them. If they look, they will see. They will understand. That's why I speak to them in perils. Well, which is it? Does Jesus speak in parables so people won't understand? Or does Jesus speak in parables so they will? Or is Jesus having a schizophrenic kind of day? Right? It's possible that they're both true. It's possible. Spiritual truth will tell you that it can be both. That Jesus speaks in parables because those who actually want to do the work, you have to do a little work with a parable. you got to kind of get down into the parable and figure out what Jesus is trying to say. But if you want to join with the Holy Spirit, that peace of God's self that God has given to us, then you can get to the bottom of the parable, which is a story, and you can find out what it is that Jesus was trying to tell us. Then and now. You can find out. And you can read it, and then you will see and hear and understand. Now, if you don't want to do that work, which is both intellectual and spiritual work, if you don't want to do that kind of work, then every time Jesus starts a parable, you're like, I'm out. Call me when he does a miracle. And that's okay. It is really okay. Jesus knew that not everybody was going to listen. That's why he did things. Jesus knew that not everybody was going to believe somebody else and their testimony about him. That's why he took so much of his own time to have one-on-one -on -one encounters with people. Because he knew we don't all do things the same way. We aren't all learners the same way. That's why we do things in a multiplicitous way. Because we are all different. You know, when I was growing up, my mother could tell me what to do, and I would do it. That's it. My sister was not that way. I could tell her, my mother could tell her, my dad could tell her, Jesus could tell her. My sister was going to do it when my sister was ready to do it. Or never. It was different. We're different people. Now, my son, fortunately, is like me. If I tell him what to do, he will do it. And then if he doesn't do it, there was something that I used to say to him growing up, I would say, you know what, if you don't get your act together, I'm going to kill you and say nice things at your funeral. <laughs> That's not literally true. I wasn't literally going to kill him. I will say nice things at his funeral, should that happen. But I was not literally going to kill my child. There was a spiritual truth there, right? Like, I am holding you accountable to the end. The end of the line is that I, your mother, am holding you accountable. And so we are looking in our lives for the underlying truth. And spiritual truth is what that is. It's the truth that's a little deeper. You have to go a little further for it. Now, if you really want to go to the depths of the seas, you're going to have to train and prepare and educate yourself to do it. You can't just throw on some snorkel gear and head down to the Marianas Trench. You will never make it. But instead, if you work at it and you train, and you work with other people, 
you can get a lot further together. And that's what Jesus was trying to tell us, is that the spiritual truth I give to you is yours. You can access it. I will even give you and send to you a piece of God's self to help you do that. But it's going to take work. And so spiritual truth does take work because what I get out of a story may not be what you get out of a story. And what you read in Exodus may not impact you the same way it impacts me. And that is okay. In fact, there is a same question that you can ask if you are a objective truth literalist or you're more of an inspired spiritual truth believer. And the literalist will ask a question like this. What is your experience of this God and is it like mine? What is your experience? Because you want to have that to weigh against yours. Is it like mine? Is it right like mine? <laughs> the spirituals will say, what is your experience of this God? This God, this is the emphasis. Your experience does not have to be like mine. The one connector is God. I have experienced this God. Have you experienced this God? Let's talk about this God, not the nuances of our experience. Because we don't all have the same experience. When I was pregnant with my son, I am not the poster child for pregnancy. You'll notice I only had one. You, you would not have wanted to see me. I was nauseous for nine months. That is not what you want to tell young women who are like, I want to have kids. You don't want to tell them my story. It is not good. And it was not a redemptive experience. You know those women that are like running marathons while they're pregnant? How? Because that wasn't me. I was like, oh, we're not even going to make it today. We're not, I hit the point where I was like, um, kids, Pastor Sarah ain't getting down because she ain't coming back up. So I'm just going to stand here. Like it was, not, it was not good. And my experience was not good. Had a great birth and knew to stop. Because I was like, I ain't going to get a repeat on that. So we're just going to cut it right there. But other people had wonderful experiences, and they'll tell you these beautiful stories. And I don't go, well, my experience was garbage, so you have to be a liar. That's not how that works. You know what I say? God bless you. Have more then, because I ain't going to have any more. So I hope you populate the earth with beautiful children and healthy, happy pregnancies. Go forth. But that's okay that we don't have the same experience. We don't all have to be the same. Do you really think that if there were up to two million Israelites that they all saw, heard, and did the exact same thing? You know there was somebody in the back that was like, you all need to move faster because they are coming. Somebody was panicky Pete in the back. Somebody was up front like, oh, look, here's the ocean. I've never been here before. This is beautiful. Moses, get a look at this. You know that there were people having all kinds of different stories. Somebody was like, you know what? We left in such a hurry. I know I left the stove on. It's going to eat at me until I die because I think I left the stove on. There were all kinds of different experiences. And for me, those are the stories I want to know. I want to know all the nitty-gritty nuances of those people. And I wish there were more of those stories in the Bible. I love it when those stories happen. When you give me a whole list of genealogy or a, a whole bunch of thou shalt nots or here's a whole bunch of numbers, I'm like, all right, wake me up when we get to a prophecy. Wake me up. Because I'm bored. 
I mean, I have read it and I will get through it, but I am, you know, doing it with the gnashing of teeth and the sackcloth and ashes. But then there are other people that are like, this is so fascinating. And I used to think to myself, you are weird. You are so weird. Who wants to read this? You and I can't be friends because you're weird. But Christ has taught me. Now I'm like, thank God you like that stuff because I was wondering why it was there. I'm so glad that you like that. That's like really redemptive for me. So now every time I'm plotting through it, I'm like, Joe thought this was great. God love Joe. Thinking about you right now because I'm not loving it. Hope Joe's somewhere loving Leviticus. That's what we think about. We learn to think differently about each other. There's a long metaphor that a lot of theologians and Christians and probably preachers and pastors have used, and that is that we are fractured people, that we are, there's a brokenness and there's cracks and fissures in us, and that Jesus is the glue that fills in those voids, that otherwise we just seep out all that is good and, and we are never full of that which we could give back and, and bless others with because we are unable to hold the living water of Christ. And that's a beautiful metaphor. That's a great symbol. But there's also a different way of thinking about it, that I am a fractured person, and so is my friend Joe. And we're not fractured in the same way. Maybe my fractures don't look like they're there on the surface. Maybe mine are very deep and internal. And maybe Joe looks like shattered glass on the outside. And we're thinking to ourselves, you know, I hope Jesus will fill that in so that the inside of me will be as authentic as I want to project outwardly. And Joe just needs a lot of help right here because he's a mess when you look at Joe. And Jesus can do that because Jesus is God incarnate and Jesus can fix all of us. But maybe that's not the way that we should think about it. Maybe the spiritual truth isn't so much about what is Jesus doing to me versus what is Jesus doing to Joe. But maybe Jesus is the connection between Joe and I. I am fractured, and so is Joe. And the connection that binds us to one another is Christ. He is connecting and sealing us to one another in the body of Christ. And then together, our voids are filled. That's like an entirely different way of looking at the world that Christ is here to help us make connections. And so the next time you're having a conversation with somebody about scripture, and it happens to me all the time, so I'm just assuming you all like go out into the daily world and people want to be like, let's talk about Leviticus. And if that happens, or something else happens, and someone starts to talk about scripture with you and you start to think to yourself, that is not what that means, what are you talking about? Then I hope you will not respond like that. I hope you will respond with, now, that's interesting. Tell me, tell me how you think that, how did, how did that come to be? How did you come to learn that or feel that? Where did that come from? Invite them to tell you their story. Invite them to show you a little bit of how they understand Jesus Christ. Because then we come to learn. You don't have to adopt their way of thinking. You don't have to suddenly be lockstep with how they think and feel and read scripture. But now you can understand and perhaps appreciate a little more. Somebody who tells you, you know what, I like to believe that every word is true. I want to believe that God literally meant it when God said, I will die for you on the cross. Because I need to know that somebody is willing to do that for me. 
That's entirely different than I literally believe that almost two million people spontaneously burst into song. What they're telling you is I need to know with absolute certainty that what God says in Jesus Christ is true. And if you are a spiritual truth seeker, that will resonate because you are looking for that truth too. You just find it in different ways. You find it in the stories and you find it in the encounters and the experiences that are saved and preserved in these texts so that miraculously, thousands of years later, and oh, by the way, that hymn that Moses and all the people sang, that is believed to be one of the oldest parts of the Bible. It is estimated to be from 1200 BC. That song was sung, maybe not at that moment, maybe not by those people, but that song was on the lips and in the hearts and in the heads of God's people for so long that they had to put it in the Bible. And that makes it true in its own way. It makes it true in a beautiful way. Now we could sit here all day and debate, and trust me, there are rabbinic commentaries and biblical scholars that do. Why would you plug that in there? That makes no sense. It would be better if you put it over here. And every now and then, Christians engage in that. You know the reason why the epistles of Paul are in the order they're in? They're from longest to shortest. That's literally how they did it. They're like, I don't know which order. Let's just go long to short. Now, I don't know if you're as OCD and perfectionist as I am. That is not how we organize things. I would never have done it that way. But guess what? I didn't do it that way. And nobody, to my knowledge, has turned around and been like, Sarah, reorganize the Bible. But somebody did it that way because they were trying. They were trying to help. And they were trying to give some kind of order to the chaos that is spirituality that is stretched out over multiple nations and peoples and time and space and context. They were trying to help people find somewhere that they could go to find some level of truth so that they would know that the same God who created the world, who sustained it, and who came down in human form to redeem it is still with us. And that's what the Bible is saying to us. And if you hear it through literalism, that's okay with me. And if you hear it by... You know, I'm not even sure that any of this actually literally happened, but I'm okay with that because I still get spiritual truth. I'm okay with that too. I'm somewhere in between those two poles. Somewhere in between those two poles. Because while my experience doesn't mirror what's in the Bible, my experience with God mirrors what those people said their experience was. People who were so frightened and yet fascinated when God of all took notice of you. When the God who created everything in this world and in the galaxy looked down from on high and took notice of you and said, I don't just see you. I don't just hear you. I love you. That resonated with me. And that's what I'm trying to share in my testimony. Let me tell you how awesome our God is. A God who would take notice 
of this. A God who would redeem this and love this. A God who would continue to try to save me from myself. That is the truth of the Bible. And however we get there, I hope we get there together. Because whether you're a fundamentalist and a literalist and you want that objective truth, or you're more of the inspired and you're looking for the deeper spiritual truth and the meaning beneath the text, we're all supposed to be going to the same place. And I don't believe that when you get to the kingdom to come, the litmus test is how you interpreted scripture. I believe with all that I am that the scriptures tell us literally and figuratively that the litmus test is how you embodied Christ. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.